Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Jeremy Wood. Today on our podcast, we have Professor Ellen Eisenberg speaking about her book, The First to Cry Down in Justice, Western Jews and Japanese Removal During World War II, out in 2008 from Lexington Books. Professor Eisenberg is the Dwight and Margaret Lear Chair in America. Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Jeremy Wood. Today on our podcast, we have Professor Ellen Eisenberg speaking about her book, The First to Cry Down in Justice, Western Jews and Japanese Removal During World War II, out in 2008 from Lexington Books. Professor Eisenberg is the Dwight and Margaret Lear Chair in American History at Willamette University in Oregon. Her previous publications largely concern Jewish regional history, primarily in the Northwest and most recently in the state of Oregon. She holds a Ph.D. in history from the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Eisenberg's book details the range of responses of Jewish communities in the Pacific West to the removal and incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. Contrary to later Jewish involvement in the civil rights movement, for example, the Jewish response to Japanese incarceration was largely one of tense silence. Professor Eisenberg explores the deep meaning of this silence, as well as the more exceptional stories of those Jews who courageously spoke out in defense of their Japanese neighbors, as well as one Jewish organization that went drastically far in the opposite direction and provided the legal and factual foundation for the Roosevelt administration's legal defense of Japanese incarceration policy. During our conversation, we spoke not only about this history, but about its context and the complex dynamics of racial identity in early Pacific history. We spoke about the differences in in the way response to incarceration play out in Washington State and California and Oregon. We spoke about the lessons that Japanese incarceration, as well as the responses to it, some in resistance others in silence, have for our own uncertain political future. Professor Eisenberg's book is especially relevant in our moment. I hope that you enjoy our conversation. So thank you again so much for for joining us. Um, It's our tradition on the New Books Network to begin by asking about a little bit of biography. So if I can ask, what led you to a career in Jewish history and what led you to write this book in particular? Sure. Well, it's a pleasure to be here and talking with you. Um, I am really an American historian, uh, and I happen to focus on American Jewish history. So uh, my training is, is in American history more broadly, and that's what I teach at Willamette. I became interested in this particular topic after I moved to the West Coast, um, and it was part of a larger interest in uh, ethnic relations and the development of ethnic identities um, in a broader sense. And, and um, I began being struck by some of the differences between East and West within the Jewish community. 
Um, and then this particular episode sort of grabbed me. It started out as a study. I was going to look more broadly at responses, relationships between uh, Western American Jews and other ethnic groups and do several different case studies. And then this particular episode kind of overtook the whole project and it became focused on just this one um, episode during during World War II. Yeah, and I'd, I'd love to turn um, soon to talking a little bit more about the contribution your book makes to thinking about um, Jewish transformation into whiteness um, on a more regional level and its relationship to other ethnic communities. Um, but before we do that, um, I wanted to ask just a couple general questions. So you talk in your introduction about <clears throat> this process of, of writing about some... To put it lightly, very regrettable responses to to the atrocities of of Japanese incarceration and removal. So, and and you you talk at one point about um, another historian who's looked at the history of these exclusionist movements and this process of telling the story of of exclusionists in an effort to to tell that story objectively. Without it, without necessarily um, moral evaluation. Um, so, if I can just ask what that process was like for you and that struggle. Yeah, well, I, I, I think I, I went through a bit of a transformation during the process. So, uh, as I think most modern, uh, most people familiar with modern Jewish, modern American Jewish history would, I went to the project expecting that I would find that the Jewish community was particularly active in whatever resistance. Um, to this effort to um, remove Japanese Americans from the West Coast. And I was very surprised not to find that. Uh, so in many ways, the project became about that. And initially, I really thought of it very much in the way that you're framing it as sort of a failure to speak out, because my expectation, of course, was that they would have spoken. My thinking on that transformed somewhat in the course of the project because I became much more aware of how overwhelming the pro-internment uh, or the pro-removal sentiment was on the West Coast. And people were practically screaming it from the rooftops. I mean, it's really quite hard to find uh, groups that don't express intolerant uh, attitudes in this period. And the vast majority of the Jewish community really tries to stay away from that. So in some ways, I went in thinking of the silence as a failure, and on some level it is, but it also, I think, is really notable that for the most part, with just this one exception that I talk about um, in Chapter 4 of the book, for the most part, the Jewish community refrains from that. They hold back. They clearly see that there's something not right about it. And as, as another introductory question, so while, while telling the story of that community, both in that predominant silence and in those minority voices of opposition, um, what emerges is, is the story of, of a communal response, but it comes out through a lot of micro histories and the stories of a lot of individuals and small organizations and small local Jewish papers. Um, so if you could talk a little bit about your research process and how you chose the stories that you did include and how you chose perhaps those you did decline to include? Sure. Um, I think for, for me, one of the most difficult questions in terms of whom to include and whom not to, um, was that I didn't want to just go through the record of people 
who had been involved either in advocating for the removal or fighting against it and I don't know for Jewish names or something like that. It seemed to me that what I was interested in was a response that either expressed a communal opinion um, or a response that seemed grounded in some way in the Jewish identity of the people. And so that's where I, I make some distinctions um, in the book about people who get involved uh, in the force of um, being otherwise involved in, for example, in one case, a CIO, um, someone who speaks out, or um, somebody who is was raised Jewish but no longer um, identifies as Jewish, but participated in the creation of the policy. Uh, and those people I really didn't include uh, in any focused way because I really wanted it to be a story about what what does ethnic identity lead to? Mm-hmm. How did how did a, an ethnic and religious identity of Jews inform their actions? Not just people who happen to be Jewish or have Jewish mm-hmm. heritage who ended up in a particular spot. Thank you. And and I I, I might turn back to one Jewish individual who kind of who denied his Jewishness and participated at some of the higher echelons of this process. But before we do that, I want to, yeah, I want to focus on what you were just saying, this emphasis on the relationship between Jewish identity and, and, and ethnicity and whiteness. Um, so the first chapter really brings us up to speed, up to the point of removal um, from the beginnings of Jewish involvement in Euro-American settlement in, in the West Coast. And one of the major premises of your work is that to understand the relationship of Jews to communities of color or whiteness, we need to look much, we need to, to turn away from just the national purview or especially an East Coast purview, um, to look at other regions, in particular the Northwest. So can you talk a little bit about how, um, that regional lens has shaped your work in this book and throughout your career and what it offers that's previously been lacking? Sure. Well, if you look at the whole discussion of Jewish ethnic identity and relationship between Jews and whiteness, a huge amount of that literature and of American Jewish history in general is really based on the New York example, or at least the East Coast slash Midwestern urban example. That so dominates the story of what we think of when we think of Jews in America. Um, and the regional variances have until recently gotten relatively little attention. I'm part of a, a group of historians, some of us Westerners, some of us Southerners, um, who have pushed against that to some extent. Um, in this particular case, it makes a huge difference because I would argue that one's ability at, or an ethnic group's ability to stand up for the rights of others has to do with where they themselves fit in, in what I would call the ethnic landscape. And the place of Jews in the ethnic landscape is really very different in the West than in the East. So in the West, Jews came as settlers and pioneers. They came with the first wave of European-American settlement. Um, and so they were considered town founders, and they created some of the institutions that helped to make settlement in the West possible. And that doesn't mean that there wasn't any anti-Semitism here, but there was quite a bit less in general mm-hmm. in the West. Um, in part because Jews weren't the newcomers who were entering this pre-existing mm. society, right? But they were among the founders of it. Um, so part of it has to do with timing. And the other part of it has to do with who else was around. 
So at the turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century, in a place like New York City, um, many white Americans were very alarmed at the influx of what they viewed to be unassimilable foreigners, including Jews as well as Italians and Greeks and other um, ethnic groups that were coming in in huge numbers in that period of time. That's just not the situation in the West. In the West, um, the, the racial concerns that exist are much more about non-Europeans. And so in some ways, a number of historians have argued throughout the West uh, that whiteness was a broader category. Um, and you can see that throughout Western history. So if you look at the anti-Chinese movement, for example, in San Francisco, it's led by Irishmen, right? Um, and, of course, most people are familiar with this narrative about how Irish coming in in the mid-19th uh, century back east are, are viewed as not really white, right? And then they somehow and they become white. Um, in the West Coast setting, because there's so much alarm, first about Native Americans and um, later about Asian immigrants, whiteness becomes a broader category in order, in part, to stand against those non-white, non-European groups are present. So pointing to these these groups of folks that had easier access to whiteness than they did, like the Irish or here in Seattle, Scandinavian populations and and Ashkenazi Jews, how did then I imagine that the the contours of their engagement with these dynamics were broadly similar, but in the specific history of these different microregions, um, in Washington, Oregon, what did the story of that engagement, um, especially with the fringes of whiteness, of, of Jewish engagement with anti-Asian, um, anti-Native, other other um, bigotries look like in the early decades of, of the century? Yeah, I mean, I think you see around the edges, you see some sensitivity. So even in the 19th century, you'll occasionally see Jews express um, sympathy for minorities in the West and using their own background as a persecuted minority to inform that sensibility. But I think the broader story that we really see is much more one of Jewish inclusion in whiteness. So because Jews come um, among the early settlers, because they are town founders and so on, they really embrace that identity of being part of the pioneer generation. Um, when the community looks back historically, even as late as the 1950s, and talks with pride about the early California Jews or the early Oregon or Washington Jews, they talk about how Jews participated in Indian fighting, right, before that became something that we might look askance at, right? Sure. Um, that was a point of pride of being a real pioneer. And so... To a large degree, they're really reflective of that broader white society. Um, there are certainly some exceptions to that, especially once we get into the 20th century um, with more working class uh, populations that migrate. But the, those are not huge populations in Oregon and Washington mm. or in, really in San Francisco after the earthquake. Uh, L.A. is really the only place on the West Coast that develops a very substantial Jewish working class. In the other West Coast cities, Jews tend to be much more in merchandising and, and other kinds of occupations. So it's less of a class um, a struggle kind of situation. So, so moving from stories about Jewish Indian fighters to what is even even at the, the point that you start your story um, at, at the at the beginning of internment, these communities have come to this notion of a Jewish obligation to support marginalized communities, um, which then 
comes into conflict with these loud voices, um, favoring exclusion. How did, so how did that, uh, that sense of obligation drawing upon Jewishness develop in, in this period? Yeah, that's something that really develops in the early 20th century nationally in the Jewish community. Um, you think about something like the founding of the Anti-Defamation League. Um, and initially, they do exactly what their title suggests. Their mission is to fight anti-Semitism, to fight defamation of Jews. And gradually, uh, in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, they move to a broader sort of stance against prejudice. The idea that the way to fight anti-Semitism is to fight prejudice in all of its forms. Uh, so you won't eliminate anti-Semitism until you eliminate all forms of discrimination. Um, that's something that's articulated particularly in the Reform Rabbinate. Uh, which has a very kind of socially conscious agenda in this period of time in the early, late 19th, early 20th century. You see it in a number of the groups, particularly groups like, um, National Council for Jewish Women, which starts settlement houses in this period. Uh, so you see that kind of, of, uh, outreach and that, that general sensibility about fighting prejudice. Uh, and gradually those groups move increasingly toward what came to be known in the 1940s as intergroup work. So the idea that the ADL would work together with the NAACP and the JACL and other groups um, to to fight jointly against prejudice in various forms. Yeah, and if you could talk a little bit about the strategic tactics and the policy goals of some of that, that work, both by... Um, specifically Jewish groups or by these intergroup coalitions um, in that early period? Yeah, again, there's sort of an evolution over time. So from the beginning, let's take the NAACP as an example. From the beginning of the NAACP, there are a number of Jews who are involved in the founding on the initial board. The NAACP was always an interracial organization. But for the most, and, and many of them are held up in the Jewish press as models to emulate. So the community as a whole should emulate these individuals. Mm. Uh, but you don't see a lot of organized Jewish work on behalf of these other groups until a little bit later. So, so it's kind of an evolutionary um, process that you see taking place. The other thing that, that I think is really notable, and this goes back a little bit to what we were talking about with regard to region, is that when this becomes a national ethos, it's embraced coast to coast. Uh, but it isn't always necessarily applied to local issues that are considered particularly Um So it's all very well and good for um, Jews in the Pacific Northwest, for example, the Jewish newspapers cover the Scottsboro Boy trial, right, in the 1930s and speak out against prejudice in that particular case. But they are much more reluctant to speak out about anything that's happening locally that would be particularly volatile. And so early on in my book, I talk about this with regard to anti-Chinese prejudice. And by the time you get into the 20th century with regard to anti-Nikkei um, or Japanese-American prejudice. So so in the 1920s, we get a series of alien landmarks, for example, in almost all of the Western states where people who are ineligible for citizenship are no longer allowed to own land based on state laws. And Asians are considered ineligible for citizenship under American law in that period of time. The Jewish communities of the West Coast don't speak out against this, right? 
so that they'll be, it, it was very interesting to read the community newspapers because I would look every, these are weeklies for the most part, and every week there are eight or ten stories about prejudice and, and what's happening to African Americans in the South is terrible, seeking out or holding up somebody like Julius Rosenwald, who's very active in uh, supporting the African American community in various ways. But they don't say a thing about the alien landlords. Absolutely ignore it. Um, and, and that starts to set the tone for what we'll see during the World War II year. Um, so this general support for anti-prejudice work, but some issues are just too locally volatile to touch, I think. Yeah, which I think is, is a great segue, um, to, to your second chapter and the effort to, to not touch, um, certain issues. Most notably, um, removal of, of Japanese re- residents in the Northwest. So you use this term in, in the title of that chapter and throughout the book, um, a studious silence, a, a deliberative silence. Uh, I think at one point you, you called a silence fraught with contradictions and laden with the baggage of Western ethnic identities and relationships. So what was this silence and was it just a refusal to, to touch upon these sub, this issue, or was it something more? I, I think it's it, it's a very complicated silence. So, so part of what I'm playing off of here is work by a couple of historians, in particular Cheryl Greenberg, who did some work on both Jewish and African American civil rights organizations, so organizations like the NAACP and the ADL. Their offices are back east, and they don't want to touch Japanese uh, removal and incarceration. And, and the reason for that, they're sort of frozen, in a sense, because on the one hand, they have this agenda of fighting prejudice, right? And if you're going to follow that agenda, then clearly you should speak out against this policy that is targeting Japanese Americans based on heredity, right? The policy, and, and maybe we should pause here and make sure that everyone understands clearly that the policy of incarcerating Japanese Americans, making them leave their homes on the West Coast and move to these inland camps where they remain, some of them for the duration of the war, surrounded by barbed wire. This is a policy that does not apply to other enemy aliens, right? So people who are German immigrants, people who are Italian immigrants are not subject to mass incarceration. Um, some of them, because of their individual actions, because they're an editor of a pro-fascist newspaper or something, some of them will be picked up by the FBI and they will be interned, and that's the appropriate use of the word internment. It's an, on an individual basis based on actions that may be real or may be imagined, but there, there's a reason that that individual is picked up. It's only for Japanese Americans that this is a mass policy. So we're talking men, women, and children without any specific charges of having done anything, right? And it applies to the second generation who are American citizens by birth. Two-thirds of those who are placed in the camps are American citizens by birth. Um, so, so that's an important thing to, to get on the table first. The, the um, administration, the Roosevelt administration, is saying that this is a necessary effort, necessary for the war effort. And so this puts these organizations in a bit of a spot. On the one hand, as you can imagine, Jews are very, very supportive of the war effort, right? The the fate of European Jewry rests in the hands of the Allies. And they want to do everything they possibly can to support that war effort. 
On the other hand, they've committed to fighting prejudice in all of its forms, right? So what do they do here in this scenario where the government is saying that this racially-based incarceration is necessary to the war effort? So what historians like Cheryl Greenberg have argued is that that, that kind of paralyzed the community. It sort of passed unnoticed also, she writes, because they're all back east. These organizations and individuals are all back east. Virtually something like 95% of the Japanese American population is on the west coast. They don't have any real life experience or any relationships to weigh against this argument that Japanese Americans are potentially disloyal. For Jews on the West Coast, they have that same conflict between speaking out against prejudice versus supporting this supposedly necessary war measure. And then on top of it, it's compounded by insecurity and fear. There's been the war at the time that the war breaks out. We've just been through a period during the Great Depression when anti-Semitism has become much more vocal, much more pronounced nationally during the Great Depression. We hear in the news lately the slogan, America First, right? The origins of the American First, America First slogan are with people like Charles Lindbergh, who had a pro-fascist, uh, anti-Semitic agenda. And there was a lot of nervousness about that. And so in a situation as in Portland or Seattle or San Francisco or L.A., where the vast majority of the community at large, and that means politicians, it means newspapers, all of the major newspapers on the West Coast, it means all sorts of citizens groups, everything from the American Legion to the Grange, they're all saying this is a necessary measure, right? Uh, and it's very hard to speak out against that, and there's a lot of nervousness about that. And the people who do speak out do get threatening things, right? They are called traitors. Um, so, so it's a combination of all of those things that leads to this, this silence. There's this sort of elephant in the room. It's clear they're thinking about it, but they, they don't feel able to, or, or they're, they stop themselves. If I could ask a couple of follow-up questions regarding some of the cognitive dissonance that seems to underlie these, these silences. Um, first, if you, you talk at, at some points, obviously, like, like, like you said, there was never any mass policy of incar incarcerating, um, German or Italian, um, quote, enemy aliens. But the specter of that possibility does attract, um, Jewish communal efforts at some point. And I'm interested how the willingness to work there, but the unwillingness to speak um, was balanced. And then as a second question, um, I remember what read it in, in law school reading the Korematsu decision where the Supreme Court seems to make this distinction of how somehow this is not about racism. This is a war measure. Um, and that pops up with a few individuals that you discuss. And it, it doesn't it still boggles my mind. Um, for those who did explicitly support these policies, could could not even recognize um, that dimension. So, if you could speak to those two other angles on, on yeah, those, yeah, the sure. psychology. When we're talking about Jews who are enemy aliens, we're talking primarily about um, German refugees, people who managed to get out before the war, or from other nearby countries who managed to get out before the war. And because it takes five years to naturalize, those people are technically still, I mean, they're German citizens, they're German nationals. So when we go to war with Germany, they become enemy aliens, right? They're not yet American citizens. So 
are, are there, that's a much, that's a pretty small number of people in comparison to the number of Japanese who were enemy aliens because Japanese immigrants are prevented from naturalization under American law. So everyone who has immigrated from Japan is technically an enemy alien. They can't get citizenship. Um, but there is concern within the Jewish community about these German enemy aliens, and usually they talk about the Germans and Italians together. So there's a certain number of people who have left Germany and Italy because they oppose the fascist governments there. And so frequently the argument is made in the hearings or in, in newspapers and various public fora these people are really enemies of the fascist movements in their countries. They should not be treated as enemy aliens here, right? They are our friends. Um, they're subject to various restrictions. So, for example, um, immediately after Pearl Harbor, there are, anyone who is an enemy alien is not allowed to have a two-way radio, right? Um, doctors uh, who are enemy aliens aren't able to get medical licenses here. So there are these various things that apply to them, curfews apply to them. Um, and so there, there's an effort on the part of the Jewish community, but also more broadly, to distinguish those European enemy aliens from Japanese enemy aliens, right? And that gets to your point about the racism. I mean, I, I don't think that there's any way to look at this policy without seeing it as, as racist. You would have to do it. the whole, first of all, it was often openly justified with racist rationale. So there are people who go to the hearing and say publicly, um, for example, that Japanese must be, Japanese Americans must be interned because they all look alike, that you can't tell who is who, and therefore you have to lock them all up. Um, there is an argument made that the Japanese soul or the Japanese body, that, that Japanese Americans, even second generation, um, that their, their loyalty to the emperor is somehow biological, that it's passed on through the blood, right, and cultivated in a way that no, nobody talks about German American, especially second generation American born. German Americans, nobody talks about that in that way. Nobody says that they have a, a internal kind of biological affinity for Hitler. Um, and people don't talk about Italians that either. Italians and Germans are both much more integrated into America and they're just not regarded in that way. But Japanese from the time of settlement have been regarded, and this is why they're not able to naturalize, are regarded as biologically different. And so this is racism defined, right? This is saying that People have biological differences um, that affect not only their physical appearance, but affect their um, ability to be citizens or their loyalties or their, their um, the way in which they think about their relationship to the government. Yeah. And so, so within that context, um, Jewish media and Jewish organizations undertake this silence that you've discussed. Um, and you had, you had mentioned earlier that many of these organizations might adopt certain positions on national issues that they did not apply um, to these more local contexts. So on, on the issue of Japanese incarceration, how did, how did Jewish organizations that were either completely based in the West Coast or affiliates based in the West Coast um, differ in their response from national organizations? There's not a huge difference. Both national organizations and local organizations, for the most part, are silent. There are a couple of exceptions. 
Um, so the National Council of Jewish Women makes a not very loud protest against this uh, this policy, and the local affiliates don't go along with it on the West Coast. But in general, the ADL doesn't speak about out about this. The um, various national Jewish organizations don't speak about this, and neither do the local groups. And, and I should, um, I, I'll uh, make sure that I mention that this is not unique to Jewish groups. A lot of people think that the ACL, ACLU, for example, spoke out against the policy when it emerged. It did not. Um, very, very few uh, groups spoke out about it. The, the groups that everyone imagines in retrospect must have spoken out about it did not when the policy first formed. Um, for many of the same reasons, they viewed the Roosevelt administration as a friendly administration to civil liberties. They wanted to support the war effort, uh, and so on and so forth. But um, the the local responses were really reflective of that. What's different is that they're clearly aware of it, I and mean, you couldn't live in Seattle or Portland, or San Francisco or LA, and not be aware of it. So, so it could be if you were living in New York City, one can imagine that with all the news about the war, you might not pay that much attention to the situation of Japanese Americans. But that would be very hard to ignore if you're in one of the West Coast cities. So that's the difference. It's not so much a difference in response. It's they had to be, it was the elephant in the room on the West Coast. And it's not on the East Coast. So, if I, yeah, if I could ask a follow up, there's, and we'll, I'll, I'll ask a little bit later on about individual Jews who are organi- involved with organizations like the Fair Play Committee, um, but also within the ACLU, that there are individual um, attorneys who go outside the, the organizational purview to take some of these, these early test cases. Yes. What, so, in engaging in silence, did you see any indication that these organizations were trying to control um, their me- individual members who might wish to individually speak out? I don't know that I didn't find any evidence that anyone was trying to control their individual members. Those who do speak out get a backlash from their friends and family often. Anyway, so I don't know that the organization had to engage in that. I feel I, I have not found a piece of paper at any of these newspapers that says we've chosen that we're not going to take a stance on this. They never announce. Um, but it's clear that the silence is extremely purposeful. And there's a page, you see it all over the place, but there's a particular page that I produce that we produce in the book. And this is a page from, and you can find a similar one from any of the Jewish papers up and down the coast. This particular one is from the Portland Jewish Scribe, and it's the day after the executive order that will lead to the removal and incarceration of Japanese Americans. And they talk all around that issue in ways that you almost have to do contortions to avoid mentioning. So there will be articles about enemy aliens that are referring to the German refugees. But in the West Coast context, enemy alien was used as a synonym for Japanese Americans. So most people who live in a West Coast city and see the term enemy alien, they immediately think Japanese American, right? Um, there is a, an editorial on that page that talks about an anti-Semite in New York who's handing out these anti-Semitic tracts. And it says concentration camps, you know, aren't even you know, good enough. For, for a man like that. Well, no one's talking about putting anti-Semites in concentration camps, right? But they are talking about putting Japanese Americans in concentration camps. 
So you see all over the place that them talking around this issue in a way that to me just mean that they were, well, they were trying almost to subtly criticize it, but without saying the word Japanese, right? Because they, they published these things about enemy aliens side by side with statements about how, how we should be open and not prejudiced and you should never impugn the views of a whole group of people and so on. Yeah, I was just going to ask if, if some of these sources could be read as, as protests under the radar. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, some, some of them that I quote there were, were they'll have, um, uh, mostly on the editorial page, just these broad statements about how we should never condemn the whole group for the acts of some, or we should never judge people based just on race. And they'll list a bunch of groups, the Italians, the Germans, and so on. And the Japanese aren't on the list, but it's clear that's who they're talking about because those are the only ones that anyone's talking about rounding up. That's fascinating. Um, and a, and a, maybe a silver lining on, on some of this history. Um, taking, taking the, the flip side from any sort of opposition, um, and just briefly because, um, He's a figure that you chose not to include, but he's indicated as a footnote in, in, in chapter two. Uh, Carl Bendenson, who spent okay. his entire life, um, denying his, his Jewishness. Yeah. Um, and as, as an attorney with the army was at some point seemed to be DeWitt's right hand man. Um, can you talk a little bit about, uh, about him to whatever extent you could talk about his relationship to both the intersection of his relationship to his Jewishness and what he, did during the war and why you decided not to include his story? Yeah, that goes back to our conversation at the very beginning, I think, in terms of who I included and who I didn't. So Ben Bennettson, and, and there was a book um, that is half about him called The Colonel and the Pacifist, right, which is about um, Bennettson and another individual who both grew up in the same town in Washington, right, and, and um, went very different sorts of paths. But Benison grew up grew up Jewish, um, but by the time he's in college, he is disassociating himself. He clearly is trying to pass as not Jewish, and there's no indication that he ever identifies that he joins any Jewish organizations or anything like that in his adult life. Um, he works first in the Attorney General's office in California, and then subsequently um, he's General Jewett's right hand man, and he's a right hand man, and he's an architect of the policy of uh, removal and incarceration. Um, and I didn't include him because he doesn't seem to have any relationship. To, well, he has a problematic relationship to his Judaism, but, but he purposely has disassociated himself. And since I was trying to look at how ethnic identity and ethnic organizations inform responses, he seemed to place himself in many ways outside of that. I, I do the same with individuals who are acting as labor officials or as communists or who don't express any Jewish rationale or identification as part of their reason for speaking out in defense of Japanese America. Um, but if I can ask, do you think it would be too speculative to, to imagine that the fervency with which he did not, or the dedication with which he denied his, his minority status, um, could have had some link to the fervency with which he he assisted in falsifying um, sabotage reports and creating 
um, these policies. Yeah. Um, it seems like a reasonable hypothesis. I haven't done a deep enough study of him as an individual to be able to say that for sure. Okay. Um, yeah, so, so moving on to the, the third chapter, um, which is, shares the name of the book, um, to be the first to cry down injustice, um, Western Jews in opposition to Nikkei policy. Um, if I could just start with the chapter, what, uh, where does this, this quote come from and what made you decide to name, to put it on the front of the book? Yeah, that, that comes from a sermon that Rabbi Irving Reichert, who was the um, rabbi at uh, Emmanuel, which is the big, oldest um, reform congregation in San Francisco, um, he delivered a sermon the Friday night after Pearl Harbor. So Pearl Harbor is on a Sunday. So this is the Friday night immediately afterwards. Um, and he and several other reform rabbis deliver sermons in which they say something along these lines, and, and I think Riker put it most eloquently, and he uses this, this, he roots it in Jewish heritage, and he says essentially, as people who have faced discrimination um, over the many centuries, I, we should be the first to cry down the injustice that is um, directed at other minorities of various kinds. And he said it more eloquently than I just did. Um, but that's that's where the phrase comes from. And actually, that was something that was expressed by a number of um, individuals, including the rabbi of the major congregation in Seattle, the Reform Congregation in Seattle, um, early on. And, but at that time, that, again, reflected majority opinion. So initially, right after Pearl Harbor, the major newspapers published cautionary editorials saying to the, their public, you know, stay calm, this isn't the fault of the local Japanese Americans, you know, you, we need to be calm, and it's only the, the public outcry and the government policy kind of emerge in tandem, and there are several studies um, that go back and forth arguing about whether it's the public opinion that pushes the government or vice versa, but in any event, they sort of emerge in tandem, so by February, there's a consensus, right, that has moved against Japanese Americans, and that is in favor of not and at that point, you don't see public statements in the Jewish community anymore. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, moving on from from that initial moment of possibility, um, as as whether it's a shift in public consciousness or whether it's these falsified reports of of espionage or or, or just the executive order itself, um, things change. But uh, but we have these moments in this chapter of of protest, um, and I think that in this chapter more than anywhere else in the book, you really took this very specific um, sub regional view of the way in which opposition plays out um, amongst the the great cities of the West Coast. So, could you talk a little bit about um, the similarities and contrasts between opposition in L.A. and San Francisco, Seattle, and Portland? Sure. Um, the, the two places with the most opposition are clearly Portland and Seattle. Um, and I think that what makes, I'm sorry, did I say Portland and Seattle? I meant San Francisco and Seattle. Portland at the least. What clearly makes the most difference, I think, in it is um, personal relations. Um, and those personal relations seem to be most intense in universities where there are large numbers of Nisei so the two universities on the West Coast that have the most Nisei students are UC Berkeley and the University of Washington. 
And you have to remember that at that point in time, there was no major university in Portland. The Portland State is founded after the war. And in general, Oregon had fewer Japanese Americans anyway, compared to Washington or California. So those are places where where there's um, there are many more people who have grown up having contacts in the um, Mid State community, right? And they have personal relationships, and it's the universities that become sort of the incubators of the protest movement. But they take a somewhat different form. So the one that's based in the Bay Area is largely university people, mostly out of Berkeley, and civil libertarian types. Um, and a number of Jews are involved in that as individuals. So there's no Jewish organization, but there are a number of Jews who are prominent leaders of this group that I call the Fair Play Group that changes its name a number of times. Fair Play is always in the title. Um, and so there are a number of Jews that are involved as individuals in that, including Rabbi Riker. Um, and it, it um, largely makes this argument in civil liberties kinds of terms, and the people who gravitate toward it tend to be from those communities. In Seattle, what happens is the, the defense coalition forms around Gordon Hirabayashi, who was a University of Washington student at the time, he was a sophomore. He um, breaks the curfew and gets arrested and so on. And he's a Quaker, and a lot of the faculty and others who kind of encircle him are also um, uh, friends, um, and and the Quaker Church, the, the United um, Friends Service Committee, gets very involved in this. And they, of course, have a very different relationship because they're pacifists, right? They have a different relationship um, to the whole idea of, of the war effort and so on. And I think some of some of the qualms that were held in the Jewish community are not held um, in the Quaker community. Um, other people who get involved in the movement are often ministers who have had contact with either um, Japanese through missionary work there or Japanese-American communities. So there are Japanese Methodist churches and so on, and there are pastors who have been liaisons to those churches, and they tend to get involved. The result of all of that is that the resistance movement in Seattle tends to have a more Christian character um, and a more pacifist which is not an ideal fit with the Jewish community, which is so in support of the record. So you have those two very different, um, two centers of resistance, but kind of different natured resistance. And then in Portland, there's nothing. Um, when you read the hearing, there were congressional hearings that were held in all of these cities. When you read the text of the hearings, in Portland, there's one person who speaks out against it, this woman who I always picture as, as a tiny woman, although I don't know what she looked like, um, uh, Azalea Emma Peace, who had been a Methodist missionary in Japan, and the congressman raped her over the pole um, and really give her a hard time. And she's there by herself. She's not part of a group. And she says that she doesn't believe that the Japanese community is disloyal in America. Um, but she's a lonely voice in contrast to the, the situation in Seattle and um, San Francisco where organized groups come and express their opposition. Yeah, and it's 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 fascinating to hear about the, the pressures that in a place like Seattle, um, aside both both in their connection to Jewish support for the war effort generally, but also in this Christian tenor in a time prior to 
modern ecumenical partnerships, um, pushes out a lot of Jewish involvement. But to the extent that individual Jews are involved, um, can you speak a little bit about the, the role that different um, ideology within the Jewish community, either around Zionism or religious sure. observance or, or whatever else plays a role for those individuals in deciding to speak out? Yeah, um, it's interesting that the reform movement had this history of uh, kind of social action that goes back to the turn of the century. Um, and also within the reform movement, there have been tremendous antipathy towards Zionism. Um, so the, when the reform movement is founded in the 19th century, part of the argument that they're making is that Jews don't have to go back to some homeland, right? Jews can be real citizens of the places where they live, whether that be France or Britain or America, and that American Jews are not longing for a return, right? So they're, they're, um, they're very uh, philosophically anti-Zionist from the birth of the movement. When the rest of the American Jewish community starts surging towards Zionism and the real shift comes um, in the 1930s, Right with the rise of Hitler and other countries, including the United States, don't want to take refugees, and there's no place for them to go. And so that sort of uh, shores up the Zionist argument that there should be a Jewish homeland. However, there are um, reform, uh, prominent reform individuals, and particularly rabbis, who hold very fast to this classical reform formulation that. Judaism is a religion, it's not a, a nationality, and we shouldn't be talking about nation. And one of those individuals is Rabbi Reichert, who gets so involved in, in the fair play movement. And I found that to be really interesting. Both um, the, So the rabbis who are, what well, they become the dissenting rabbis as the reform movement shifts and ultimately endorses um, various Zionist measures, the, the holdouts right, secede and they form their own organization and it, it forms within about a week or two of the Fair Play organization. So, and Rabbi Reichert is on the board of both, right? So on the one hand, he's supporting the, the Fair Play document that they're writing letters saying people, sh the Japanese Americans shouldn't be doubted, their loyalty shouldn't be doubted just because of their ancestry, Right. Um, and on the other hand, they're making an argument, American Jews should not embrace Zionism because if we do, our loyalty might be called into question, right? Um, those two ideas seem really closely linked yeah. and seem to really reinforce each other. And what I found was that the people among the Jews who are most involved in the Fair Play Committee, uh, a, a disproportionate number of them have shared this anti-Zionist um, outlook. Is there any, did you see any indication of this sort of Brandeis Zionist view that there can be this particularity and this, this, sorry, the dog. No problem. That a Zionist nationalism can, can, and that particularity can, can be part of a more universal American patriotism and that equally Japanese particularity shouldn't negate Japanese Americanness. Yeah, I think that, that's an interesting question, and one can imagine someone coming to that conclusion. And there are many people, in fact, the Brandeisian position becomes the majority position within American Jewry and mm -hmm. even within um, But I think that the people who are focusing their efforts on Zionist causes are 
much more focused on what's going on in Palestine and what's going on in Europe. And that is, you know, the house is on fire. That mm-hmm. is what they're focusing on. They're really just not focusing very much on what's going on with Japanese Americans on the West Coast. So one last question about some of those internal Jewish dynamics. Um, you had mentioned before that L.A. is the only city on the West Coast to develop really this vibrant Jewish working class. So this might be particular to L.A. Um, but do you do you see involvement one way or the other or any distinction within the Jewish labor movement, Jewish socialist movements in response? Um, you do see some of that primarily more among the communists than the socialists. Um, there's an individual I quote in the book um, uh, who's a progressive lawyer and not sure if you would categorize himself as a socialist, but but uh, a, a lefty Jewish lawyer, and and he says, you know, the organizations we would have expected that they would speak out, but they really don't, and that this was something that um, there was a real sense, even among the socialists, among everyone, that that it was so important to support the war effort and to fight fascism, um, that that this what was happening to Japanese Americans just really didn't gain their attention. Um, on the other hand, there are some examples, um, and particularly on the local level in L.A. where there's more of a working class community, and also that working class community, Jewish community, happens to live in the same neighborhood as, as the Japanese American. And so you do see um, more kind of individual ties, things of that nature. Um, there is... Yeah, I, I, I would say there's not, there's again, not an organized response. Um, and yeah, and turning to LA is, is a good place to begin discussion of your last chapter and one organization that went, uh, went beyond silence in its, uh, failure to support Japanese communities. Um, so yeah, the LA, uh, the LAJCC. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this organization and, Kind of the the particular context of LA and Jews' position in that city. Sure, um, LA is really different. It's the outlier on the coast. Um, it began much like the other Jewish communities on the coast. The early settlers, early Jewish settlers, were very much part of the establishment. They were among the founders of the chambers of commerce and whatnot. There is a much much larger influx of immigrant Jews into L.A. than any other West Coast city. And the population just grows incredibly quickly. The population of L.A. in general grows very quickly, but the Jewish population grows even more quickly than that. And a lot of the influx into L.A. is, um, of of the non-Jewish influx, um, is uh, Midwestern Protestants. And they bring with them... um, a, a less inclusive version of whiteness. And so Jews in Los Angeles start experiencing anti-Semitism to a much greater degree um, than Jews in other parts of the West Coast. Um, and it affects their ability to get elected to local office and that kind of thing. So at a time that there's a Jewish governor, for example, in Oregon in the 19, in the early 1920s and so on, um, on the statewide level, there are still um, Jews in office in California but locally in L.A. it becomes more and more problematic. And at the same time, once you get into the 1930s, you have a real concentration of pro-fascist groups, like the German-American Bund, for example, 
and a silver shirt, and they're concentrated in Southern California. So there's this particular context in California of heightened fear about anti-Semitism, and that's sort of the backdrop for all of this. Um, the LAJCC is it's not a Jewish community center. That's what most people think of when they hear JCC. It was the LA Jewish Community Committee. Um, and inconveniently for me, during the years that I write about it, changes its name and it becomes the Community Relations Committee or CRC. And many um, cities have a Jewish Community Relations uh, Committee or Council. In any event, this particular organization, the LAJCC, is founded in the 1930s. Initially, um, it's interested in portrayal of Jews in movies. Uh, and so there, it, it's um, made up of people who are among the upper echelons of Los Angeles Jewish society and are trying to influence the movie industry not to have such negative portrayals of um, Jews. At the same time, they don't really want there to be such positive portrayals either because they're afraid that if there are, that would, it will be perceived that the Jews have too much power. So they're kind of walking this interesting line. In any event, um, as we get go down a couple of years, they become increasingly concerned about the rise of these groups like the civil, Silver Shirts and the German-American Bund, um, pro-Mussolini and pro-Hitler um, groups in L.A., and they begin to monitor them. And so they bring in a, a fellow by the name of Joseph Roos, who's a lawyer and a veteran um, and, a, and a journalist. And he had been to, he's a native Austrian, and he had visited Austria and Germany early in the 30s. And he had a real sense of the coming danger. And he and his wife and others who are native German speakers start to infiltrate these various groups and provide reports on them, monitoring them, um, in the way that maybe the Southern Poverty Law Center or something might monitor right, basis groups today. Um, and so they, they start amassing this information. But then the utility of a Jewish group saying, oh, look at this terrible organization that's anti-Semitic is not so great because... It seems very self-interested, right, um, for the Jews to be pointing out that these people are anti-Semitic. So they cultivate ties in other groups, like the American Legion, because if the American Legion points at the German fund, right, uh, and, and says, oh, look, they're a pro-fascist, anti-Semitic group, that's very un-American, right, then it's this other neutral, this outside party. It's not a self-interested thing. And so they cultivate many of these ties. One of their most important connections becomes the House on American Affairs Committee, which most people identify with the post-war period, but it actually started under the chairmanship of Martin Dice, who was a congressman from Texas. Um, it starts under him in the 1930s, and they're interested in monitoring both communists, as they would after the war, but also fascists. And so this becomes a really useful connection for the LAJCC. They can feed their information to this congressional committee, and then the congressional committee exposes these un-American activities that are also anti-Semitic, and that's good for everybody, right? So, so what they end up doing is they create a subsidiary that's called the News Research Service, notice it doesn't have Jewish in the name, and the News Research Service, beginning in 1939, publishes something called the Newsletter, which is not a newspaper, but it's more of a 
fact sheet for um, for uh, various um, opinion shapers. So they send it to many people in the government. They send it to the FBI. Franklin Roosevelt himself gets it. J. Edgar Hoover himself gets it. A number of journalists get the newsletter. It's, it circulates to about a thousand people. And then, and nothing is attributed, right? And they give news organizations permission to take the stories they've written and just run them wholesale. So stories from the News Research Service run not only all over the United States, but even in international papers exposing pro-Nazi, pro-Mussolini sentiment in Southern California and exposing those organizations at work in America more broadly. Okay, so, so that's sort of the background. And then what happens is that um, at some point in um, after the tripartite pact was signed, so Germany and Italy go into alliance with Japan, um, at some point after that, uh, they start getting requests for information on um, pro-Japanese. Now, obviously, they're not sneaking in and monitoring these groups themselves, not really entirely clear where they're getting the information from, but the newsletter becomes a conduit for this information or, or for um, what we would today call alternative facts um, <laughs> about the Japanese-American community. And, and what they end up doing is circulating more broadly a lot of the tropes that were classic anti-Japanese-American tropes that have been circulating in the West for 20 or 30 years and that have fed the alien um, laws and so on, saying, for example, that um, Japanese after-school programs, they were teaching the kids um, to support the emperor and, and that they would form a fifth column in the event of a land invasion and that they were a security risk. So the newsletter ends up sharing the, this um, information uh, or, or this propaganda, really, um, with its contacts. Uh, and then that brings it more publicity. So they, so they play a key role. So um, they have such close contact with the Dyes Committee that when the Dyes Committee comes out with its report on Japanese activity, Japanese-American activity in 1942, um, it's a white paper, but it becomes known as the yellow paper, right? Um, it is largely drafted by the people at the News Research Service. In other words, the people at the LAJCC, their staff person, Joseph Luce, and their um, chair, Leon Lewin. Um, and, and it's very clear that that's where it comes from. And that was, for me in this research, because I went into the research expecting to find people who defended the Japanese-American community. I never imagined I would find this material. And historians had wondered where this material had come from. Um, so it was known that there was a group called the News Research Service that spread this propaganda, but it was not known that it was, it was connected to the Jewish organization before I found this connection. So that's the sort of, that was the fine that kind of overtook us. It's one organization. Um, it's exceptional, but it does play a significant role in spreading this propaganda. And you indicated that the, uh, that the yellow paper based on a lot of that, that, Propaganda um, is later used by the Justice Department to defend incarceration and is is taken as alternative fact by by the courts. Um, yeah, that's no, very disturbing. Um, and I think you, I, I appreciate um, how thorough a description of their their work um, you've given. Um, so I, 
it seems like their position starts to get a little less tenable um, later on in the war as as um, some of the fervency of the exclusionist position seems to soften almost. Um, so I had a couple of questions and I don't, first of all, um, how the, how the LHACC's position impacted their, as they become a community relations council, how it impacted their community relations and, or their relationships with, with the ADL or the ACLU. And then secondly, um, not, to serve as any sort of apologetic for their work, but you talk about how, in part because of their insecurity on how their efforts would look on the Jewish community, they begin to take a small stance against financial exploitation of yes. renew, removed Japanese people. Um, so if you could talk to, uh, to, to those elements. Yeah, uh, one of the things that was really challenging about dealing with the LAJCC is that unlike groups like the American Legion or... Um, some of the other groups that had historically been really anti-Japanese immigration and exclusionist even long before the war. Um, there's not really much indication of that in the history of the LAJCC. Um, they, at this exact time, are moving toward intergroup relations. They're cultivating uh, relationships with uh, the NAACP and with local Latino organizations. And when the Japanese Americans return after the war with the JACL, the Japanese American Citizens League, as well. And, and they move almost strangely, seamlessly into this era of intergroup work where they're fighting prejudice in all of its forms. Some of the members on the board joined the Fair Play Committee during the war, right? And, and figuring that out was, was, how do they justify that? I mean, they knew, and, and many of them, these are interlocking boards. The ADL and the, and the um, LAJCC share offices. Clearly, the ADL knew about all of this, um, at least the local ADL and presumably the national. But afterwards, there's almost a cone of silence about it. So, so when I looked at several of the individuals who are at the center of it were interviewed um, in the 70s and 80s and 90s, and when you get to the part where I, I'm hoping they'll finally explain what they were doing, they ask the, the interviewer to turn off the tape. I don't know. I, I The JACL, members of the Japanese American community, the NAACP and others, would probably not have any, had any awareness that the News Research Service was linked to the Jewish community. Right. And so, so they move almost seamlessly into this larger, um, inter, intergroup work fighting prejudice. Um, and that seems to be in a lot of ways where they are, where, where their hearts were in the beginning. So then the question is, well, why do they do this anti Japanese yeah. stuff? And I think that a lot of it is frankly expedient. Hmm. And they, they, the Dice Committee, um, in particular, it is incredibly useful contact for them. It's denouncing fascism, it's denouncing Nazism, it's denouncing anti-Semitism. Um, and the DICE committee asked them to help them out, and so they pass along this information. There's no evidence in their records to suggest that they really subscribe to race-based hmm. So you don't see that even in sort of the private notes or anything like that. Yeah, no, and it's I. Kind of, it would almost be easier if they really believed in. 
Yeah, and I think I think that by the time I I got to the end of of the book, I I don't know if I I got I was able to get to the point of empathy, but trying to feel that empathy for a time when the when organizations were felt the need to ask themselves more often is is it good for the Jews? Yes. A question that we're, we don't necessarily always have to face um, today. Um, so just to close out this history before a couple closing questions, um, that that new era that you're talking about towards the end of the war, um, the emergence of the JACL and the emergence of um, more Jewish opposition and, and self, self-identifiedly Jewish um, yes. opposition. Um, can you tell that, that story a little bit? Sure. So I, I'm sorry, I neglected to answer that part of it before. So the Jewish lawyers, for example, so the LAJCC, at the same time as doing the newsletter, well, the newsletter ends in December of 41. So shortly thereafter, um, the LAJCC gets involved uh, in organizing Jewish lawyers to help secure Japanese American property. So as you probably know, Japanese Americans had very little time to take care of their financial and business and property affairs before they were forced to leave the West Coast, um, many of them ended up selling their properties at fire sale sorts of prices. Um, and there are rumors of exploitation going around, and in L.A. and San Francisco in particular, rumors that the Jewish community was involved in that exploitation. And so to kind of counter that, the LAJCC and its sister organization, the Survey Committee up in San Francisco, um, organize local Jewish lawyers to try to assist Japanese Americans in um, settling their affairs and protecting their property and so on. So that's one one example um, of that. You also see, um, as the war goes on and the hysteria sort of wanes and the United States starts to do better as we get into 43, 44, and so on, um, you start to see more people who are willing to speak out in the defense of Japanese Americans now returning home. Um, there were groups in all three states that wanted to keep them out. They didn't want them to be able to come back after the war. Um, and there are a number of Jews um, who are openly involved in that effort to be able to um, support their return. Um, so so looking, looking back at this history, and I've, I've mentioned a couple of times how, how disturbing that was for me. And, and, and you talk about earlier on, um, you have this line about the silence of Jewish communities, despite their quote, proximity to the livestock pavilions and racetracks that served as the initial incarceration sites, which brought to mind to me stories of Germans and Poles living by railway stations and saying nothing or turning the other way to not see anything. Um, so looking back, how do we as Jews on the West Coast meaningfully live with this history? Um, how do we tell it? How have we told it? Um, well, I don't think we've told it before <laughs> this. <laughs> um, it, it's a chapter that most people know very little about. And when I mention to people the topic of this book, they always assume that it will be a story about how the Jews did the right thing because it's commonly known in the Jewish community that Jews have been disproportionately involved, for example, in the civil rights movement and other kinds of progressive movements. And so that's just the assumption. So much so that some people sort of falsely remember that. 
I think people think about the 1980s reparations efforts and the apology that President Reagan issued to Japanese Americans, which the ADL was involved in, right, along with the coalition of other groups, right, supporting the Japanese American um, community. And then they retroactively imagine that the Jewish community must have been involved at the time of in, in supporting the community. So, so especially when I'm invited to Jewish organizations and they think they're going to hear this cheerful, I'm going to pat myself on the back kind of story about the great things that the Jews did to support Japanese Americans, um, I think what I have to say is is uh, disappointing to many of them, as it was to me when I when I researched it. I didn't expect to find what I found. Um, but I think my role as a historian is to try to probe that and help us to understand why it is that the community reacted as it did. I think it's important for me to um, expose what happened in Los Angeles, but also keep it in perspective. That was one group and it was exceptional. I think um, the thing that we have to think about more is is the silence. Um, It's really easy to speak up when you're in a crowd of 100,000 marching, you know, with the Women's March and in Seattle this past Sunday or in Portland or even in Salem where there were several thousand people. Um, I took part in those marches as I imagine you and many of your listeners did. I felt no sense of fear whatsoever. Um, And so I I think it's important to think about what happens, you know, when there is a risk involved in speaking. And I think there are some lessons here in terms of thinking about that. Thank you. And you've, on a personal level, you've given me a lot to think about. I, I also teach um, middle schoolers at a, at a local Jewish community, and we're talking about the 20th century in American Jewish history. And I'm trying to find a way to, to at the same time, inspiring them to, to draw strength from this history to speak out, also recognizing those moments of silence. Um, but I, I think there, there are some great examples here. I mean, there, there are some disturbing examples here also. But there are also a lot of personal stories that are told and that I've heard since the publication of the book. And one of the ones that strikes me the most is a um, woman who's now in her 80s, but who grew up in Portland. Um, and she talked about when the, the um, assembly center was built, it was the, the Portland Livestock Exposition Center, and the families were held in stables. Right, until the permanent camps were ready. And she talks about as a kid, her father loading the kids up in the car and driving to that center and standing outside the barbed wire and saying to his kids, this shouldn't happen in America, mm. right? This is wrong. And he wanted to impress that upon his kids. And I've heard a lot of stories from individuals like that. It's not an organized group. They didn't feel there was kind of a, a, a there wasn't a movement to join, especially in Portland, there wasn't a movement to join. But there were, Individuals who saw the injustice, right, and and who communicated that concern privately um, to their friends and family, and also to their uh, Japanese American friends and family, whom they supported or, or kept in touch with or expressed um, sympathy for. Um, so, speaking of things that that we would hope shouldn't happen in America, and speaking about the Women's March that you indicated. Um, yeah, I think I think that what what drew me to your your book is is a feeling of its relevance to our our current moment, both in terms of 
the silence of some of our Jewish institutions, which I think was particularly acute around the appointment of Steve Bannon to the inner circles of the Trump administration. And then also on that more optimistic note, the the speed and scale and proud Jewishness of the protest against that silence. Um, so, so let me ask you, what, what lessons can we take from this as, as a Jewish community in responding to, uh, to our current moment? Well, I think the most direct lessons, uh, and there's a broad array of issues about which people are expressing concern at those marches. But I think the most direct connection to this particular chapter that we've been talking about um, are with regard to immigration rights and particularly to this idea of a Muslim registry. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, uh, various um, close, you know, high people in the Trump campaign use the Japanese uh, removal and incarceration um, as an example uh, in a positive way, as like a model for the way that they could do that kind of, of action. And I think that that's a huge cause for, for concern, obviously. Um, and I think it's incumbent upon all of us as Americans and, and um, Jews as a religious minority in America uh, to speak out about that in whatever way we can. And I would say that the lesson from some of this is, is the importance um of going beyond the silence, of, of speaking out even when there's even when there's a risk involved, mm-hmm. or speaking out even when it may seem to conflict with some of your own interests. So yeah, I, I think a lot of um, I was just at the Association for Jewish Studies meeting in um, uh, San Diego in December, and there was a substantial group of people who met, there was a lot of talk about responding to things like the, um, like Bannon or the, um, the uh, nominee for the proposed ambassador to Israel, um, and ways of speaking out about that. There have been several petitions that have circulated among academics, among Jewish studies scholars, and so on, speaking out about this. But I think that, that those are some of them. Thank you for that. It's our tradition on the New Books Network to close by asking about what uh, what you're working on next, which is a little bit of a different question, given that this work is a few years old and you've you've written quite a bit, um, especially on the Jews of Oregon since. But uh, but what what are you working on now? What's next? Sure. Um, what's next? Um, I think I'm going back to the project that actually launched this. So I'm really interested in the idea of um, relationships among ethnic groups so much uh, in the West. So, so much when we talk about ethnic group relations, it's always whites with the other non-white groups, so whites and African-Americans, whites and Latinos and so on. And I'm interested in the connections among those groups. And when is it, the, the question that kind of launched this project was, when is it that Jews um, look at other ethnic, racial, or religious minorities and see themselves, right? And when do Jews identify as part of the white majority? Right, and how does that change over time and in different kinds of circumstances? So, in some ways, uh, I, after um, several years working, I have two volumes that just came out on Oregon Jews. Um, so, in several ways, I'm, I see myself as kind of going back to some of the questions that really launched this project. No, we'll look forward to that and hope to have you back then. Thank you again for for the book and for taking the time to chat. Thank you. It was my pleasure.
Thank you again for joining me on New Books in Jewish Studies, together with Professor Ellen Eisenberg in discussing her book, The First to Cry Down Injustice, Western Jews and Japanese Removal During World War II, out back in 2008 from Lexington Books, a division of Roman and Littlefield Publishers, and available on Amazon and other online retailers. I hope that you enjoy the program, and I hope that you'll enjoy the book.